Every family has a story. And depending on what the story of your family is, this is the degree in which you want to change it. And see, sometimes if the story of our family isn't what we want it to be, we'll begin to mold it and shape it and rephrase it and spin it into a way that's a little bit more palatable to us and those that are hearing the story. You see, I grew up in Boston, and uh, we were the only Cuban family on our block. So I kind of tend to live in two different worlds. You know, I mean, I was raised in a very American culture, and my, yet my home was very Latin. And um, so I tend to look at our traditions as, as a Cuban family as um, weird somewhat because they're so different than uh, kind of what I grew up around. I mean, because the stuff that you most of us see as totally normal, uh, if, if you're not Latin and you didn't grow up in a, a real Latin atmosphere, uh, it doesn't seem all that commonplace. You see, um, what happened with me was that, once again, we were the only Latin family on our block, and so when we start digging a hole in our backyard to cook an entire pig the day before Christmas, that kind of gets the neighbors talking. It gets the neighbors from like two blocks over to come over to see what the Spanish family is doing uh, for, for Christmas. And uh, and then, you know, they'll tell us, like, what, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're doing this for Christmas Eve. Oh, what are you doing for Christmas? Well, nothing. Uh, because we actually don't celebrate the holiday. We celebrate the day before the holiday because that just seems totally normal. Um, just like I tell them, you don't do that? Yeah, we don't celebrate Mother's Day. We celebrate the day before. Uh, you know, come by at our house on Halloween. There's nothing there. We gave out all, all of our candy on the 30th, not the 31st. And... Uh, you know, and just see that it doesn't seem it seems totally normal until you kind of take yourself out of it. Maybe that is a little bit a little bit weird. And then there's the stuff that you just can't get away from. Like our neighbors would come over to our house and they'd ask us like, oh, is that new furniture? Uh, no, no, we've had it for a while. Oh, because I'm wondering why it's still covered in the plastic that it came in. Like, no, no, that stuff is from the 60s. That's why it looks new because of the plastic. Uh, and then there's, you know, the issue that you have to kind of explain like, I don't know if you ever actually tried to explain to someone who's not Latin what yucca is. Well, it's yucca. Well, what is it? Well, it's yucca. I don't know. I don't know how, how else to explain that. And then, like, um, I, I, in, the, in the fifth grade, I had to, uh, we had this project in school, and that was we had to draw what we had for Thanksgiving. I don't know how you actually draw rice, black beans, yucca, platanito maduro, all that. I don't know how you actually draw that stuff. And uh, so I'm sitting, like, you know, what color do you need to, to draw yucca with? I don't know. I'm like, it's white paper. Do I draw white? Do I kind of do gray? You know, I don't know. And so anyway, I sat there for like 20 minutes with a blank page. Eventually, I just drew turkey, mashed potatoes and gravy because that's what the kid next to me had. And then I drew a corn on the cob and I just told him that's what I ate. And um and the thing is this, I remember, I actually distinctively remember uh, having this conversation with my mom, like, you know, talking to her, like, why can't we just have Thanksgiving like normal people, you know, and, and have, and I'm explaining to her all that stuff, and then she says, well, what's stuffing? And I'm like, well, it's, I don't know, it's stuffing, you know, I mean, I don't know exactly what it is, what it is but that's what we should do, and, and it, I don't know, what comforts me, I guess, is that at the same time I was saying that, to my family, you know, in Boston, there was like some American kid growing up in East Hialeah saying, why can't we just have congri like every other family, you know? So I don't know, maybe that just makes me feel better. Um, but here's the thing that, that, that I learned, well, and, and maybe what, what you've seen as well, is that every family looks weird when you're part of it. 
Every family looks kind of odd. And the thing is, is that that's because you kind of know everything about your family. You know what's going on with your family. You know what's happening in your family. There's always that one family member that you secretly wish you weren't related to. Um, and, you know, and, and then that's kind of the weird thing. It's like everybody who laughed real loud, that person isn't here. The people who are like, <laughs> that person sitting next to them, you know. And then there's the other person in the room that's like, I don't have that person in my family. Oh, you do. And it's you. Uh, and so, you know, and, and the reason is, as the saying goes, is that every family tree is bound to produce a nut or two. That's just the way that it goes. And, um, and here's the thing that, that we would think, is that when we look at the family of Jesus, it would be totally different. You see, I think when I thought about the family of Jesus, here's what I thought is that we were kind of ramping up to the best. You know, we may have started out from humble beginnings, but with every generation leading up to the birth of Jesus, that everything was just getting better. That each generation, that each family would get better, each family member would get better, that we would kind of go from someone who's good to better to best to great to greater to the greatest. And it just said it would just keep, you know, we'd kind of... Every generation would stand on the shoulders of the other to be able to reach higher, to accomplish more, to be better, all culminating in the birth of the Messiah. And yet, you know what we find? Is that his family is a lot like our family. That the family of Jesus in which he was born into was a lot like your family and mine. And that's the reason why we started this series called Trees two weeks ago. It's because the thing that we've been saying as we started this series and are continuing this morning is that your Christmas tree is telling a story if you'll slow down enough to hear it. Because every time the Christmas tree comes out, you know what else comes out? The family tree comes out. You see, nobody sets up a Christmas tree to celebrate alone. Instead, the Christmas tree has this magnetic effect and that it just brings out the whole family and it brings out all the drama that's, come, that's been happening all year or all decade or however long. And that's one of the reasons that you and I know that the, the holidays can be so difficult is because we've got to confront the problems in our family or at the very least live with this awkward tension that is going on in our, in our family. But what I want to do this morning is walk you through the family tree of Jesus because here's what I believe is so important. I believe that as we walk through this family tree, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that I bet most of us just skip over. But see, hidden in those verses are these nuggets of truth, are these teachable moments for us that if we'll actually unpack them and spend some time looking at them, they can become some of the most meaningful moments, some of the most meaningful passages in all of the scriptures. We're going to take a look and we're going to slow down to look at the lives of these three women that are in the, this family tree, this genealogy of Jesus. Now, just the fact that there's women named, there's actually four women named in the genealogy and in, in this family tree. We're going to look at three of them. This is huge in and of itself because culturally at that time, women weren't included in genealogies, in family trees, but they are. And the thing is, is that if we were looking at them, we'd say, well, we'd probably want to include someone else and not them. Well, why? Because they would probably be the ones that we'd want to change, probably be the ones that we'd want to omit. And yet God chooses purposely to put them there, purposely he places them there because these are the people that teach us something. 
They teach us something about God's grace. They teach us something about God's character. They teach us something about what happens in a human life when someone surrenders. They open their heart to Jesus Christ and God changes their life forever. And so I want to take you on three turns of what God can do and how we can turn one thing into another in a person's life when they surrender and when they open themselves up to the work that God wants to do in them. Here's the first one, if you're taking note in the notes that we gave you, it's this, is that God can turn burdens into blessings. He turns burdens into blessings. Here's what I mean. This is how the story begins in the Gospel of Matthew. It says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar. Stop. Right there. Because remember, I told you this the last couple of weeks, that the Gospel of Matthew was written to a primarily Jewish audience. Now, a, a Jewish audience is reading this. Okay, he's the son of David. Check. Son of Abraham. Check. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We're good. He's, he's part of the family of Judah. That's really good. And then we get to he's the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar, hold on, now we've got to stop. And the reason is this, you have to understand, is that in this culture, your family tree was everything. Your genealogy meant, it spoke of who you were and who you could aspire to be in your life. And Jesus, we haven't even gotten out of verse 3, and already there's this glaring problem. What's the problem? That there's this immoral woman in this family tree of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to look at, we're going to look at some of the verses, but what I want to do is actually set up the story for us so that we can take a running jump into it. The story is found in Genesis 38, and it tells the story of Judah. Now, understand, uh, as we read, there's a guy named Abraham. Abraham's like the father of the, of the Jewish faith. He has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 kids. The fourth one, his name is Judah. Judah has three boys. Uh, son named Er, E-R, apparently they liked the show back when it was good. They have a son named Onan, O-N-A-N, and then they have another son. Their third one is named Sheila. Apparently they wanted a girl and uh, were disappointed, uh, but he got stuck with the name. So here's what happens. Er gets married to this girl named Tamar. Okay, so far so good. The problem is, is that Er dies unexpectedly, and he doesn't have any children yet. Now, part of the Jewish custom is what you would do is that your next oldest son would marry her. And the first child that they had would actually be credited to the older brother. So Onan should marry Tamar. And then the first child they have would be credited as Ur's child so that his family tree can go on. Well, Onan takes her and says, well, that's fine, but I don't want to carry on my brother's family line. And he dies unexpectedly, and we find out why, because there's this little verse, and it says this, and the Lord killed him. And it's like, that's just kind of like one verse you don't want, like, pointed in your direction. You know what I mean? Like, and God killed him. Like, whoa, that's for that guy, not me. Uh, well, nonetheless, you can imagine what happened. So now it would fall on Sheila, the third one, to marry Tamar. But you can imagine what Judah's thinking. Judah's a dad, and he says, I've got three boys. Both of them, two of them are gone. And it all happened after they married her. Now, I see a common denominator. And I don't know what's going on, but I'm not risking having her marry my third, child, my third son. So here's what he says. He tells her, 
um, do this. You go home back to your father's house, and when Sheila's old enough, I'll let you know. This is like an ancient way of saying, don't call us, we'll call you. Now, so now think about this. Now years go by. Sheila's older. And Judah's dragging his feet because he says, you know, this girl's 0 for 2 with my kids. I don't know if I want to even try for, for her to, to marry this third one. Well, check out what happens as she gets a little impatient from waiting. It says, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Inane, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she was not given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, she, uh, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. Apparently that's ancient phrase for, hey, do you come here often? Uh, and, and this is her response, and what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked, I'll send you a young goat from my flock. And apparently that was a good deal. And, uh, and so she says, uh, will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? And he says, what pledge would you like me to give you? And, he, and she says, uh, your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. And so he gave them to her. He slept with her. She put, uh, and she became pregnant by him. And after she left, he, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Now, let me just kind of explain this. This is really, really important for the rest of the story. Um, as bizarre as this story might be. Why does she ask for the staff, the cord, and the seal? Because in that culture, this is what's so important, in that culture, the staff, he was a shepherd, so the staff spoke of his position, his position in life, that that he was a shepherd. At the same time, it spoke, uh, the the seal and and the cord, the the, uh, the seal was actually a ring. And so you would wear this ring, and when you went to buy something, you would, they'd have this little wax area. When you were going to take possession of it, you would go and you would put your ring, you'd have the cord attached, and you would put, you would put your little insignia on there, which represented ownership. So if, you're, if you're, you had a name that was worth something, you know, you had a good reputation, you had your insignia on there, they'd say, hey, he's good for it because he's given us his insignia. So not only, what, what is she asking for? She's asking for his position. She's asking for his identity, and she's asking for his reputation in all three of these things. It's the equivalent of her saying, hey, you're going to give me the goat? Fine. Give me your driver's license, Social Security card, and also a major credit card. You know, Visa, MasterCard, or American Express. We don't take Diners Club here. So anyway, so she gives them uh, whatever card that they have, and then, now why does she ask for it? Because she knew what was going to happen next. Let's read the next part. It's on the second page of your outline. It says, about three months later... Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. And Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. And as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And she added, see if you can recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. 
Now, this is like one of these like amazing moments. I'm telling you, when I get to heaven, I'm going to watch this on Blu-ray or whatever's going on there. I mean, I'm going to rewind that part because I just want to see like that moment. You know, I'm pregnant by whoever owns these. Dun, dun, dun. You know, it's like the music is right there. You know what I mean? Like Matlock has just cracked the case, you know. Uh, you know, Columbo is just asked. I don't know why I'm referencing 70s cop shows, but um, but anyway, he, he kind of she says that. And it's like, I've got it. You know, now here's the thing. This moment, this whole situation should have made her an absolutely notorious woman, not a woman of notoriety in Israel. But instead of making her infamous, it makes her famous because God has this way of turning something horrible and making it something great. Here's what happens, that this woman whose name should have been synonymous with immorality, she, God has this ability to now turn her name into a name of blessing. In the book of Ruth, chapter 4, when um, Ruth and this guy Boaz are married, we'll talk about Boaz in a minute, um, the women of the town give them this blessing, and here's what it says. It's in your notes. It says, Though the, uh, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, I, I don't know if that makes sense to you, but to me it just kind of blows my mind that it's like this person who should have been notorious now becomes a person of notoriety. The woman who should have been infamous now becomes famous. The person whose life was, uh, you know, her past could have been a burden now it becomes a blessing? Well, how is that even possible? It becomes possible because this person opens herself up to God and now God changes her life. I mean, this story, I mean, if I just told you the story, you wouldn't think I got it from the Bible. You'd think I was watching Jerry Springer this week because it's just so bizarre. But yet at the same time, God has this ability to do this. And what is God showing us? He's showing us that there are no squeaky clean families, that everybody's got issues in their family and problems in their past and all this. But he can turn a messy situation into a blessing if a person is willing to open themselves up to what God wants them to do. Because everyone has things that they aren't proud of. But God has the ability to turn a weakness into a strength. You see, I learned this um, before coming and uh, my wife and I coming and starting this church eight years ago. uh, I used to run a college. I used to run a Bible college for uh, men and women who wanted to go into ministry, be missionaries, plant churches, all that kind of stuff. And um, I remember my first day when I took over and I was like dean of the college, right? And so I'm walking around, uh, you know, this, this college that I'm now responsible for. Uh, and so I'm walking around and I'm meeting some of the first semester students. And as I'm talking to them, I sit down and start talking. And, and uh, some of them knew who I was, some of them didn't. So they were asking me about my education. And so they asked me where I went to school. I said, I should graduate from here. And uh, they said, oh, that's great. And they said, well, where'd you go to, um, you know, where'd you go to high school? Just this kind of, the conversation goes. And they said, well, what year? So they're trying to figure out, like, how old I am because I was, I was pretty young at the time. I, I, was, uh, I took over the school when uh, I was, tw- I just turned 23 uh, when I took over the school. And so I was, I was fairly young. And um, now being 25, it's, you know, a little older. Uh, so... Well, what happens is, is that they start asking me about uh, my what year. They say, "What year did you graduate high school?" And I said, "Well, I graduated in '91-ish." Um, and they're like, oh, "Hold on, '91-ish? Uh, I don't know if I've ever heard of that year. How does that go?" And then I, I kind of like, "All right, well, let me just tell you what happened. I was supposed to graduate in '91 with all of my classmates, but I didn't do so well in high school, so I actually had to go back. And so I graduated in uh, January of '92, but..." 
um, and walked the stage in 92, but technically I'm part of 91, so, but, I'm not to- but I graduated in 92, so I'm 91-ish. And uh, that's kind of what I say now. They're looking at me, right? And they've got, I just see the wheels turning, and then the question comes out, like, and you run this school, right? And, and it's like, and then I, that's the, what, those are the words they said. Now, this is what they were thinking, because I'm looking in their eyes, and it's like, how quickly can I get my tuition and get out of here, you know? And, uh, and I, so we're talking, and I, you run the school. Uh, yes, I do. Now, get to class before I kick you out of the school, you know, whatever. And, uh, and, and, and this is the thing. And here's why I bring that up. I used to be so embarrassed by that. And I actually used to not make a big deal about it. And, you know, I used to kind of try to change the facts or whatever, you know, because I was so embarrassed about the fact that when people asked me about what it was like to be a senior, and I said it was the best two years of my life. um, And I say, um, you know, and yet now I, I, I share the story openly. And here's why. I share the story openly because every time I tell it, it's a reminder of what God has done in my life. And that it's, I hope, an opportunity and an encouragement to anyone to say, you know what? That God can really do anything with a person who surrenders to them and says, you know what? I'm just going to do whatever uh, God wants me to do. Um, in fact, uh, and this is, I haven't told this part of the story in a while, but uh, I became a Christian at age 19. And... Um, I had, before becoming a Christian, I had only read one book cover to cover in my life. Um, and it was a biography on the life of Madonna. You know, because I thought it would help me. You know, I wanted to become a pop diva. So I, uh, so I had read this book. I, I was about 17 or so when I read this book on, on Madonna's life, which, whatever. Uh, you know, and... Um, and my wife and I were just talking about this last night, because last night it was probably about midnight, and I had just finished reading a book before we went to bed. And she turns to me, and she goes, how many is that this year? And I said, oh, this is number 99. Uh, and here's, and you know, I had, because uh, she knows I had set a goal in January that I wanted to read 100 books uh, in 2008. And so uh, now I'm, I'm up to 99, so I can loaf off for the next 10 days uh, and just read one. But, here, but here's the thing that's, that's interesting, uh, here, is that, you know, sometimes people hear that and they, they hear about, you know, you ran a college, blah, blah, blah. And this is what they say. They say, well, you know what it is? You were just a late bloomer. And I say, no, I was an idiot. Uh, I was not a late bloomer. I was an idiot. And then what happened was this. I came to know Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you that God saved me. And not only that he saved me, like, you know, from like the consequences of my actions, from being separated from God eternally. Listen, God saved me from me. God did like a brain operation. He took out my brain. And you know when they say a mind is a terrible thing to waste? It depends on what brain you're talking about. Because the one I had before was worth wasting. And God put something new in my mind because I'm telling you, my life radically changed. And listen, today I stand before you as a teacher of God's grace. Listen, because I've experienced it. I've experienced God's grace and that's why I feel like I'm able to teach it. And the thing is, is that God has this ability of turning what we think is weakness and turning it into our greatest strength. Here's what the Apostle Paul would say in this verse, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. It's where we got our daughter's name, Mia Grace. Uh, He says this, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me.
That's person number one I want to introduce you to. There's another person in this family tree I want to introduce you to. And this is what I want to, this is what she teaches us. She teaches us that God turns failure into faith. What do I mean? Look at what it says in chapter uh, 1, verse 5. It says, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. <clears throat> Stop. We have a big problem. We have a woman named Rahab in this family tree, this genealogy. Now, here's what we know about history. History teaches us that whenever you do something of note or something that's remarkable, have you ever noticed that history gives puts like the as your middle name? It's like your name is blank the blank. You're Alexander the Great. You're Herod the Great. You're Attila the Hun. You're Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You're... Right? You're all of those things. And then here's what happens. But, you know, Rahab got the one that you probably don't want. And that is this. Rahab the prostitute. Like, that's probably not you, what you want, like, you know, on your driver's license. And yet that's kind of what she ends up with uh, because of the life that it is that she's living. She was a prostitute that was living in the city of Jericho. And she was living in the city of Jericho at a very interesting time. It was when the children of Israel were just about ready to, they had left Egypt, they were wandering for 40 years, and they're just about ready to go into the promised land. And as they're going into the promised land, Jericho is the first city that's there. And so Joshua, who's running, the, running things after Moses has died, he says, let's take two spies, go in and look out the, over the land, especially the city of Jericho. They go in and they see this this uh, kind of the center of town, so to speak, because when it says that she was a prostitute, she was, but it also means innkeeper, so it's probably both things that were going on. She's running an inn, and she's got kind of a brothel working on the side as well. And so they go in there, and they stay there, and the question is why. And the reason is because God wanted to do a work in this woman's life and change her life forever. And it was simply a matter of her being open to it taking place and taking a step as an act of faith. Here's how the story goes. It's in your notes in Joshua chapter 2. It says, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies into Shittim. And look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. And so they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they've come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two spies and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I don't know uh, where they came from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up to them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, now understand, this is, a, this is a huge risk that she's taking. To put herself at odds with the king of Jericho meant death. And yet here's what she believed, and here's what she understood. Because this is what she says later in the story if you want to read it. She says, I know that the Lord is with you, and I know the Lord has given you this city and this land into your hands. And all I ask, is that you remember me for this act of kindness. So that those two spies say, here's what we want you to do. We want you to take this cord, this red cord, and hang it outside of your home. And we can promise you this, that your family, is that, that it's inside of your house, 
will be saved when all of this goes. And if you know what happens, the walls of Jericho come down, they get totally wiped out, and yet this family is preserved and is saved, all because of this woman's act of faith. And you know what's fascinating to me? Is that in the New Testament, when the Bible is talking about faith, in fact, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, which scholars call the hall of faith, because it's this, the, the writer kind of starts going on this riff about what happens when you really work in faith. And so he talks about, um, you know, Noah. He talks about Moses. He talks about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of these guys that are operating in faith. And then he comes up with Rahab, that by faith Rahab hid the spies because she knew that that city was going to be wiped out. And she was not killed with those who were disobedient, but her and her family was saved. You see, here's what I believe we tend to think. We tend to think that if we've made mistakes or we've failed in, in God's sight or anybody's sight, that God has like all of our failures on display. And he's just waiting to pounce on us and to wipe us out. But can I tell you something that that's not really, that's not the case. We tend to think that what God has, it's, it's like this museum that's in Ithaca, New York, uh, that's a museum simply for products that have failed. And business executives pay thousands of dollars to go into this museum that looks like a supermarket, except the only products on display are products that have failed. In fact, I have pictures of a few of them. Uh, here's one product that failed. This is Thirsty Dog, and there, it, the other one was Thirsty Cat. This is bo- flavored bottled water for your pet. Now, as you see, this is crispy beef flavored water. That sounds delightful. Um, here, here's another one. This is Lifesavers decided to start making some fruit juice. You can just imagine how delicious that was. Uh, that didn't work out. Here's another one. Uh, this is one of my personal favorites. This is Clairol made shampoo that tastes like yogurt. So if you ever get some in your mouth, you can eat it. So, oh, I'm not done. Here's another one. This, this one, the picture didn't come out too good, but this is actually, um, I forgot the name of the company, but uh, this is garlic-flavored cake, because I know that's what you've been waiting for, to come on the market. And then here's my personal favorite. This is uh, Singles. This is actually baby food for adults. So you're on the, gro- on the go, grab a Singles compota and have it while you're driving down the road. So, and the thing is this, that's so amazing, is that Executives pay big money to go see all of these because this is what their hope is. We don't want to repeat the same mistakes again. But do you know that that's not how God sees us? When God sees us, he doesn't see like this whole pile of mistakes, this whole pile of wasted potential, this whole pile of error. When God sees us, he sees us as everything that we can become, of everything that we can be if we would simply surrender and allow him to work in our lives. In fact, this is what the Bible says in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now that word workmanship is the Greek word poema. It's where we get our English word poem. It's where it's really translated uh, literally a work of art. In fact, uh, one translation says you are God's masterpiece. Now I want you to think about that, that when God sees you, he sees a work of art. He sees a masterpiece that's in process and that's making progress. Your spouse, God sees him or her and says, that is a work of art. Now you say, I'll give you, he's a piece of work, but I don't know about a work of art. And 
But see, he sees everything that you and I can become, not simply where we are today. So what does God do with Rahab? You know what he does? Totally amazing to me. He takes this woman that is notorious. He takes this woman that is infamous. And he makes her famous. He makes her an amazing mom. You say, well, what do you mean? She gives, she marries this guy. And then they give birth to a son by the name of Boaz. Boaz is one of the most revered names in Jewish history. Boaz is a name that made its way into the temple. There are these two big pillars, and one of the names was Boaz. Because it was a pick, the name, because of this person, represented strength, stability, integrity, and honor. In fact, in the book of Ruth, it talks a little bit. The story is about, partially about Boaz. But here's what it says concerning him. It says, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side named Boaz. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. Why is she in the family tree? She's there to remind you and I that the past doesn't, that our past does not have to predict our future. That faith has the ability to change where we are. That we can trust God and that God can actually change our lives if we are open enough to allowing him. And that our past doesn't have to be what our future can become if we simply trust and if we simply walk the way that God wants us to walk. There's one more person I want to introduce you to. And her story is a, is a radical one. But God teaches us something. It's another turn that we make that God can turn our experiences into our instructors. What do I mean by that? Here's what this one verse in chapter 1, verse 6 It says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute, because the writer won't even write her name. You ever do this if if you're a parent? Uh, You you know, your son or your daughter does something, and and you turn to, to to your husband or wife and say, look what your son just did. And why do we do that? Look, look what your daughter is doing right now. And, and here's what we do, because the child, the kid is doing something really dumb. And here's what our thought is. That comes from your side of the family, not mine. We're normal. You're clinical, you know, and that's why. Look, look at what you're saying. That's what that's what happens, because sometimes kids do things that are just so dumb. You can't even say their name. In fact, if there's someone that bugs you because there's people that bug us. Right. And then we'll say, you know, well, you know, I was talking to, well, you know, what's his face? Uh, who, who, you know, so-and-so's brother. Oh, you didn't say his name. Don't say his name. I don't even want to hear that idiot's name. I'm talking, but that's who I'm talking about. Because there's just something. You can do something so dumb that you don't even want to say the person's name. And listen, the person that we're talking about, her name is Bathsheba. And she gets involved in a scandal of epic proportions. And yet she finds her way in the story. Let me read you how the story, this scandal kind of begins in 2 Samuel 11. It says this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening he got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace and from the roof the roof he saw 
a woman bathing. And she was, the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the, woman, uh, the man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Isn't it interesting that she was bathing and her name is Bathsheba? Anyway, uh, it's a dumb joke, dumb joke. Um, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Now, here's what you have to understand, if you'll give me your attention, is that this is a scandal of epic proportions. Uriah the Hittite is a guy who was part of David's army. David stays home when he's supposed to be in battle. He sends Uriah, stays home. His wife is there and ends up having sex with Uriah's wife. And then what ends, the, the, the rest of the story goes on in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And what we learn is, is that David ends up putting Uriah in the front lines to make sure that Uriah gets killed because he's trying to cover up his, his, his situation that's gone on. And then the whole thing gets found out. I mean, this is a huge scandal. I mean, this is David, the guy who slew Goliath. I mean, this is David, the guy who, I mean, this is the guy who wrote the Psalms. This is the guy who came up, you know, was the youngest and now has become king. And I mean, it's a big deal. This is a huge scandal. I mean, this is like a president, right? Because he's the king. This is like a president being caught in an affair. And then like saying he, not, not, that he didn't do it, right? And saying, you know, I mean, it, it couldn't happen here, but I'm saying, imagine if it could, Right? And then he has a press conference and he comes out and he's like, you know, Oy vey, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Sheba. Thank you, my fellow Americans. Um, you like that? I'm glad. So here's what happens. He gets Uriah. He makes sure Uriah gets killed. Then he marries Bathsheba. And they have more than one child. They have several children. And one of the kids that they have is named Solomon, who ends up becoming king after David. And what's amazing to me is that Solomon is this man who is the wisest man that the world has ever known. In fact, when we're looking for wisdom, we go to the Proverbs, the ones that Solomon wrote. But you know what I find interesting is that there's this passage at the end of the book of Proverbs that sometimes gets overlooked. And here's what it says. The words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. Lemuel is a, word, is a, is a Hebrew word, a Hebrew, a Hebrew name that means dedicated to God. Scholars believe that it was a pet name that Bathsheba, his mom, had for Solomon, her son. And you know what's interesting? If you read Proverbs 31, if you've never read it, you know what Proverbs 31 is about? Here's what it is. Here's what it says. A woman of noble character who can find. It's all about, this is what his mother Bathsheba teaches him. When you're going to marry someone, these are the qualities to look for. So think about this. This woman who's part of this whole scandal, conspiracy, this whole thing goes down. She has a son who becomes king. And she teaches her son who becomes king, this is the kind of woman that you want to marry. And so for the last 3,000 years, this woman's words, as inspired by God, have been teaching Jews and Christians alike, has been, have been teaching Christian men what kind of woman to look for to marry. 
and they've been teaching Christian women what kind of woman to aspire to be. See, how, how does that work? How does that work that you go from adultery, scandal, all of this, to now you're giving these words of wisdom that have long passed live you and we hold, we've, we've held them up in such high regard. It's what happens when you allow an experience to become your instructor. You see, God never wastes a hurt in your life or mine. But it doesn't just happen. It happens when we have the experience and then we learn from the experience. That God allows something to come into our lives and then we learn from it and we allow it to change us into the person that God wants us to be. You see, one of my best friends um, used to be a heroin addict. and He was a heroin addict. He came to know Jesus Christ. God changed his life. And him and I met, and I was uh, in my second semester of Bible college, and he was in his first. And yet, what took place was this, is that as we uh, were, were in Bible college together, he had only been clean for maybe a year. You know what I found just a few short years later, after we graduated? Is that he became the director of that very halfway house that helped get him clean. And you say, how does that work? It's what happens when you allow God to turn those experiences into your teachers, into your instructors. Bathsheba is in the family tree because she reminds us that people can change. People can change if they learn from their mistakes and commit to growing in their faith and obeying God. And I don't know if you've thought about this yet, and I've given this so much thought, but God, like being God and all, He could have actually orchestrated things so that his family tree looked quite different than it does. Instead, he could have actually orchestrated things so that his family tree was squeaky clean. It was perfect. But instead, he allowed it to be as it is. With these people that maybe would kind of sour a couple branches, so to speak, of the tree. And the question is why? The question is because God's trying to show us something. He's trying to show us what it is to be a trophy, to be a trophy of the grace of God. Um, I I have an older brother, uh, and uh, my brother's five years older than me, which makes him an old man. Um, But uh, I kid not, my brother's a great man. But um, here's here's the thing. When I was a kid, um, I'd go into my brother's room, and my, my brother... My brother had like this Midas touch when he was a kid. Everything that he decided to commit himself to, he did well. It was, it was really a, an amazing gift. But my brother decided that he was going to take up the drums and he was going to be in marching band. So he goes into marching band. His, you know, his drum line starts winning all kinds of awards. He gets put on like this touring group that goes everywhere. He plays on like, a, I think it was a Thanksgiving or Christmas parade in downtown Boston, which if you've ever been to a parade, is probably the most boring thing ever. Um, but, you know, it's like you're there for six hours. Oh, look, there's my brother. Okay, can we go now? Uh, there, there he is. And Anyway, uh, so he decides to do that, all kinds of awards that he wins. My brother takes up hockey, and it's like they, you know, win all kinds of championships and all, all kinds of stuff like that. My brother says, oh, I'm going to take up photography. He buys a camera. Two weeks later, he's like Ansel Adams, you know, taking all these pictures. You know, it's like this masterpiece kind of stuff, and he's got all kinds of ribbons, awards, and you know, notes of commendation and all this stuff. And uh, I've never won anything in my life. 
Nothing. I'm telling you, I have never won anything. I have tried. I have tried to rig things so that I win and I don't. You know what I mean? And I just keep thinking like, you know, God, just let me win something. You know what I mean? Um, uh, but I've never won anything. And, yet, and I remember even as a kid thinking, I, I remember when he wasn't home, I would sit in his room sometimes. I'd just look at all of these trophies and, and then the ribbons on top of the trophies and all that stuff. And, 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 I, and I would think like, I wish I could win one. Because it would mean it would mean so much. It would be this this accomplishment that that, that I've that I've done, right? And then I, I became a Christian at, at, at age 19. And later on, you know, as as I was learning so much about God and understanding this passage a little bit more, I, I realized something. I realized that while maybe I had never won a trophy, that I was a trophy. And so are you. You and I, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ. And he's forgiven you. And God is working in your life and changing you from who you were to now who you're becoming. This masterpiece. Here's what you and I are. We're a trophy of God's grace. We're a trophy of the grace that God has imparted to us. That now we get to be part of the family tree. Because friends, here's really what it is. All of us are God's creation. But not all of us are God's children. We become God's children by adoption. God adopts us. That's what the Bible says. And the way that he does that is because Jesus Christ came into the world, which is what Christmas is all about. He came into the world, but baby Jesus became the man Jesus. And the man Jesus gave his life on a cross and rose again on Easter. And you know what takes place is that when you and I put our faith and our hope and our trust in that finished work on the cross. We experience God's forgiveness. We experience the, the peace of knowing that there's a place for us in His kingdom. And we experience the transformation in the present that God wants to do in our lives. Because now we're part of that family tree. And so the question is, is this Christmas going to be like every other one? Or are we going to open the one Christmas gift that matters the most. The Christmas gift of experiencing God's forgiveness, God's peace, and real lasting life that starts now and goes on into eternity. And here's what I know. On a weekend like this, there's probably several of us who have never made that decision to ask Jesus Christ to come into our lives. Maybe we've never made that decision. We say, oh, I believe in God or whatever the case. Listen, I'm not talking about believing in God. I'm talking about opening your heart. I'm talking about asking Jesus to forgive you because of the work that he's done and asking God to change your life starting today. If that's the case, listen, as we close, I want to simply lead you in a prayer. And as we pray, here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask you to really be bold here. I'm going to ask you to actually say the words out loud. There's going to be a lot of people that are saying the words out loud because this This is the message that all of us were born to hear. This message of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to save us. That's why the Bible calls it good news. So I'm going to ask that you simply repeat this prayer. I'm going to give you the words. and It's not so much the words I say. but, But my belief is this, is that perhaps the words that I give you might be what your heart is wanting to say, but you just haven't found the words to articulate it. So as we close, let's pray together. And Lord, we do want to thank you. We want to thank you for sending your son. 
and that your son came into the world because you, God, you wanted to save humanity from ourselves, from our sin, from being separated from you. And so we pray and ask that, God, for those of us here that want to make that decision, that you would hear the prayer being prayed and that you would answer now and do an amazing work. Those of you that want to make that decision this morning, I'm going to ask you to repeat it out loud and just say, Dear God, I open my heart and I invite you in. I ask that you forgive me of all I've done wrong. I thank you for Jesus. He died for me that I might have life. I want to walk with you starting right now. In Jesus' name, amen.